Sometimes God is not teaching us a new lesson, but is reinforcing something that He's already taught us or told us. God doesn't just tell us things one time and then move on and tell us another thing and another new thing. And as we go through life, He just expects us to remember the things that He told us nine years ago or 14 years ago or 32 years ago and so forth. Often God circles back around in His dealings with us to reinforce things that He's already taught us. Consider Genesis 32 and verse 1 in which God manifests an angelic camp. He shows Jacob, his angels, encamped nearby. It says actually that the angels of God met him, which indicates an intentionality on God's part of sending them to Jacob. It seems for the express purpose of reminding Jacob that God is with him for his good. This is just after he had his conflict with Laban, that God sends these angels to meet Jacob. When Jacob sees these angels, he doesn't learn for the first time that God is with him for his good. Rather, this is a reinforcing of something that he's already been told. We recall when Jacob left Canaan, And God appeared to him in that dream with the ladder reaching between heaven and earth. God promised that he would be with Jacob for his good, would watch over him, would protect him, would bring him back to the land. And so this sending of angels to meet Jacob and opening Jacob's eyes to behold the heavenly presence, this wasn't a new lesson. This was just reinforcing something that Jacob had already been taught. In the rest of the chapter 32 and into 33, the rest of what we're going to be dealing with tonight, God is likewise reinforcing a lesson, albeit a different one. In the rest of Genesis 32 and 33, God is reinforcing the idea that if Jacob is to prevail, it will be by grace and not by Jacob's own strength. God has been teaching that lesson to Jacob over the last 20 plus years. So it's not a new lesson. But God is circling back around to reinforce that lesson with Jacob. Here at this juncture of Jacob's life as he re-enters Canaan after leaving so long ago. Let's review the last 20 years of Jacob's life. We remember back in Genesis 27, Jacob's deceit in stealing the blessing that Isaac intended for Esau. Esau, pardon me, Isaac should have blessed Jacob, having become aware of the exchange of the birthright, which happened a couple chapters earlier. But nevertheless, it was Isaac's intention to bless Esau. And so if it was Isaac's intention to bless Esau, then that blessing was meant, in that sense, for Esau. Jacob stole something that wasn't his own. He deceived his aging father. He 
did something that improved his state in life and set his brother Esau back. In many ways, it was a wicked act. We've looked a couple of times, we've considered a couple of times the idea that in the events recorded for us in Genesis 27, Jacob actually breaks all ten of what will become the Ten Commandments in due time. It was a wicked act. It was based on deceit. God disciplined Jacob over the next decades of Jacob's life by putting him on the receiving end of unfairness. We read at the end of, or toward the end of chapter 31, a summary of 20 years of Jacob's life working for Laban. Jacob says to Laban, his uncle, these 20 years, in verse 38, these 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands, and rebuked you last night. It wasn't karma that the deceiver was deceived by Laban. It was simply God's discipline in using the same sin that Jacob had perpetrated against others, against Jacob, in order to teach him what it feels like to be on the receiving end, in order to help him understand and to grasp the wickedness of deceit and trickery and injustice and unfairness. God has been disciplining Jacob in Haran over the last 20 years. And God has been already teaching Jacob that blessing will come from God and not from Jacob's strength. Again, hearkening back to Jacob's dream when he first left Canaan so long ago. Genesis 28, verses 13 to 15. God says to Jacob, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Jacob is taught here that blessing is going to come from God and not by his own strength. 
God begins working with him, showing him that it's not by his strength that he's going to be blessed, not by his conniving, not by his schemes that he's going to be blessed, but he's going to be blessed by God. We see over the next 20 years that Jacob can't get himself the wife that he wants. Chapter 29. He tries so hard to get Rachel. And what happens? He gets Leah. Jacob can't commandeer that situation such that he ends up with the wife that he wants. In the beginning of chapter 30, we see that Jacob can't get himself the kids that he wants. Am I in the place of God? He says to his wife, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Jacob can't get himself the kids that he wants. And at the end of chapter 30, we see that Jacob can't get himself the wealth that he wants. No matter how hard he works, sleep flees from his eyes. He bears the heat of the day and the cold of the night. His work ethic is impeccable. No one can fault him for being lazy or indolent or negligent. He's responsible. He's working hard. He's diligent. And yet, halfway through chapter 30, years and years and years after he begins working for his uncle, he says, when am I going to be able to do something for my own household? Jacob has been realizing his own impotence to bless himself with God's promise that God will bless him ringing in his ears over and over throughout the course of those years God has already been teaching Jacob that he is to stop relying on himself his own schemes his own plans his own work ethic etc even as Jacob lays plans and works hard to achieve them God wants Jacob's eyes on him and apparently Jacob has been learning which is encouraging for sinners like us we can learn we can grow in the face of Jacob's impending or pardon me in the face of Esau's impending attack Jacob looks immediately to God's grace you know He sends these messengers. Let me give you a little bit of the layout, the geography of what's going on here. Jacob's coming from the north, traveling south. Canaan is a little bit to the west of where he finds himself in, in this incident, Genesis 32 and 33. Canaan's a little bit to the west, and Seir, or Edom, is further south. There's a river that runs east-west, which is right about where Jacob is. So Jacob's traveling from the north towards the south, and he's going to kind of bend west to Canaan. But his brother Esau lives down here further south. Jacob sends a message to Esau for whatever reason. It's possible that he genuinely wants to just reconcile It's possible that he's self-preserving and that Esau is going to hear that he's back in Canaan and wants to make the first move and kind of start things off on the right foot now that he's returned rather than Esau just hearing that Jacob's back in the land. For whatever reason, 
Jacob sends a message to Esau. He postures himself for reconciliation, sending a gift and things. But Esau starts coming from the south, north toward Jacob, with 400 men. Now you will recall that Jacob knew when he left Canaan 20 years earlier that Esau wanted to kill him. And so Jacob initiates this contact with Esau and Esau starts coming north to meet Jacob with 400 men. And apparently this was a kind of a standard size of a military unit back in the day. And so Esau's coming probably not on friendly terms. Jacob does begin making some contingency plans for if Esau attacks he divides his family and the rest of the people with him into two camps he says if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it then the camp that is left will escape He makes a plan to send drove after drove of gifts to pacify Esau's anger. And yet in the midst of it, to his credit, he prays. Jacob has been learning. Here in this section, he is depending on God's grace in the face of Esau's impending attack. Look at his prayer. And first of all, just notice the fact of his prayer. That he does pray. It could be otherwise. He could just make this plan and continue traveling to meet Esau. He could turn around and start heading back north to flee from Esau. He could do a hundred different things. But what he does is pray. Notice that first of all. And then notice the substance of his prayer. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. And then in verse 12. But you said, I will surely do you good. Make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitudes. He pleads the Lord's own promises. He acknowledges in verse 10 his own unworthiness. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. He pleads God's promises and he recognizes that those promises were gracious and that God's fulfillment of those promises is gracious. He's not saying, God, I deserve this. You owe me this. He's saying, God, I am not worthy, but you have made gracious promises to me and to my family. Please now, in verse 11, deliver me from the hand of my brother. For I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. Jacob makes plans, and it's not wrong for him to make plans. Just as in, in this instance, just as it is not wrong to make plans in other instances. Plans to work hard to try to improve your situation, or to get a wife, or to have children, or all of the other things that 
Jacob's been doing over the last 20 years. It's not wrong here that Jacob has made plans to protect himself and his family. However, God doesn't want us to trust ultimately in our plans, but in Him. We need to recognize that it's not our strength that achieves a blessing. We can't give ourselves the wealth that we want. We've all heard of people who have worked hard and achieved the American dream. But for every story of a hard worker who's a self-made man, there are a hundred people who have worked just as hard, who never succeeded the same way. For every love story that worked out, there are many that didn't. There's lots of broken hearts out there. For every family with the, the very kids that the parents always wanted, there are countless instances of miscarriage or infertility or whatever else. We simply can't commandeer our lives or manage our lives such that it turns out the way we want it. There's not a simple cause and effect relationship between our work ethic or our good planning or our integrity or whatever and the outcome. That's just simply not the way that the world works. God wants us to recognize this and to fix our eyes on Him even as we concurrently make responsible plans. God wants us to be looking to Him to prevail or for a blessing even as we do whatever it is we do to try to get there. After Jacob prays, he continues to work his plan. He's on the north side of the river that runs east-west. He's traveling from the north to the south, and he's come to the bank of this river that runs east-west. And after Jacob prays, he sends his family across the river to the south. Well, he stays on the north bank. This is in verses 22 and 23. For whatever reason, this is what he does. Most likely, it actually is that he wants some time to think and pray. In view of what has transpired in the first half of the chapter, in view of his apparent resolve to meet Esau, it seems likely that he's not sending his family in front to be a shield for him so that he can escape. And we see in the very next chapter that he actually goes out in front of his family. So most likely it's just that he wants some solitude before the next day when he's going to meet his brother. And then we just read matter-of-factly, Jacob was left alone, verse 24, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. So he's out in the wilderness, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. We probably don't have a good sense of the strangeness of this story here in this context, this geographic context on a small island. Because as far out in the wilderness as you can get, someone could still be there. So if you went to, if you went to spend the night somewhere in 
a gully somewhere or out on the east coast or up in the north, still someone could be there or someone could come across your path very easily. But we're talking way out where there really shouldn't be anyone. And so to read then just that a man wrestles with him until the break of the day is bizarre. Who is this man? We read later on that this man was God. In verse 30, Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Well, what's God doing there? Is, is God basically trying to kill Jacob? And so he comes and fights with him and tries to prevail over him? Well, obviously God could have killed him from heaven. There would be no need to come down. And so when we read that the man wrestled with him, and the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, verse 25, this is anthropomorphism. This is attributing a human characteristic to God. It's not that God like really came down actually trying to prevail over Jacob and to kill him, but just Jacob was so strong that he couldn't succeed. Nor did God come to find out Jacob's name, verse 27. And the man said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. God's not coming down to gather information or to try to accomplish some thing, like, for instance, killing Jacob. God is coming here. It has to be by process of elimination, instructively. God is coming to to teach Jacob something. Just as the angels came at the beginning of the chapter to teach Jacob something. Just as God had appeared to Jacob when he left Canaan 20 years earlier, so he now appears to Jacob as he returns to Canaan 20 years later to teach him something. What is it then that God came to teach Jacob here? God's not teaching him anything new. He's reinforcing the fact that Jacob can't prevail or get the blessing he wants or manage his circumstances by his own strength. Let me explain that. The longest boxing match ever was apparently 7 hours and 19 minutes long. It occurred on April 6, 1893 between Andy Bowen and Jack Burke. Over the course of the fight, Burke broke all the bones in both of his hands. And after seven, after over seven hours, the referee, John Duffy, declared a no contest, according to Wikipedia, quote, both men having become too dazed and tired to come out of their corners for the 111th round. I suspect, after wrestling with God all night, that Jacob would have felt much like Jack Burke after 110 rounds. Too dazed and tired to come out of his corner. Especially in view of the fact that the Lord, for that's who the man was, had just put Jacob's hip out of joint. Jacob would have been absolutely exhausted. He would have been in extreme pain. Jacob would not have been at full strength to say the least. And when God had emptied Jacob of his own strength, the moment that he had been setting Jacob up for had arrived. Because remember, God wasn't coming down to learn something or see what would happen. God was doing this on purpose 
to teach him something. It was a setup. Just as God's appearance to him in a dream had been a setup so many years ago, God met with him intentionally to communicate something to him. And the moment that God had set Jacob up for had arrived, the, the teaching point was here. Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless, bless me. At this point when Isaac is emptied of his, when Jacob is emptied of his own strength, he says to God, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What will the Lord do? Say, you're too weak to be blessed? Put Jacob's other hip out of joint? Be like, you, you impudent, impudent loser? What kind of God is this God that Jacob wrestles with? When a man is void of strength and asks for a blessing, how does God respond? Is he the sort of God that takes advantage of the weak? Is he the sort of God that despises the weak? Is he the sort of God that turns away coldly, saying, I'm a God who helps those who help themselves? Look at what God does here in this passage. He acquiesces to Jacob's request. He blesses Jacob in his weakness. At the point when Jacob has nothing to offer. No bargaining chips. No leverage. At that very point. God blesses Jacob. And God makes the point clear to Jacob in this interchange in which he renames Jacob. Jacob prevails by God's grace and not by his own strength. That's the import of the Lord's statement in verse 28. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Israel means he strives with God. The Lord here is not basically recognizing that Jacob is actually strong enough to overcome God and men. It's not as if the man here who is the Lord is like, wow, you know what? I actually came to kill you, but you have striven with me and have prevailed. You know, and Esau maybe is coming to kill you tomorrow, but you actually are so strong that you have prevailed with God and men. That's not at all what's going on here. It's actually more like a, a tongue-in-cheek, almost sarcastic kind of comment that you could imagine the man uttering with a bit of a smirk on his face. You shall be called Israel, for you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. The point... That this man is impressing upon Jacob. Is that. He could well. Put out. 
Jacob's other hip. But instead, he will bless him. Jacob will prevail. But it won't be by Jacob's strength, but by God's grace. It's as if he's saying, Jacob, this is how you prevail. When you're as tired as Jack Burke in the 111th round, but you ask for a blessing, this is how you prevail. This is how you will prevail with me. This is how you prevail with other men. This is how you prevail in the circumstances of your life. If you could see yourself clearly, Jacob, you're always as weak in my eyes as you are right now. It's all grace, Jacob. Not your own strength. This man empties Jacob and then blesses Jacob in his emptiness. He weakens Jacob and then blesses Jacob in his weakness. And says, Jacob, now you've prevailed. Though the wrestling match was real and not imagined or dreamt, as Jacob's limp testifies in verse 31, Jacob didn't wake up from the dream and his hip was okay. He was still limping. Though the wrestling match was real, it was at the same time symbolic of how Jacob's life works and by implication how our lives work. We wrestle until we have no strength left. And if God doesn't bless, we can't bless ourselves. We're just utterly at His mercy. And we're utterly at His mercy from the beginning. This man who touched Jacob's hip and put it out of joint, could he not have done that hours earlier? In the smaller hours of the night? Before daybreak? Could he not have done it right away? Was it that he had to wait until Jacob was weakened enough and then he put his hip out of joint? We wrestle. But we can't wring a blessing out of God. We can't manage our own circumstances. We can't prevail either with God or with men in our own strength. Unless God causes us to prevail, we don't. We won't. Self-reliance is a lie. It's a deception. Certainly, spiritually, this is true. The very nature of the gospel is that we don't prevail with God by our own strength. As I prayed earlier in the service, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross, I claim. If you should be as bold, so bold as to bring your best righteousness in your hands before God. Bring your strength. All of that righteousness would be as filthy rags in God's sight. You don't prevail with God in your own strength. It's grace. You lay there with your hip out of joint and you just take hold of Christ and His gospel. 
And you say, I won't let go until you bless me. That's how you prevail with God. As pertains to your salvation from sin. You're not saved by your strength. Because of your strength. You're saved in your weakness. At the very point of your weakness. Because of God's grace. This is true more generally too. God may cause us to prevail in life circumstances through what little strength we have. God often blesses our work ethic. God often blesses wise planning. God often blesses perseverance in the wrestling match of life. But if He does, we ought never to say to ourselves, my own hands have done it. We shouldn't get to the top of whatever mountain we're climbing or pin whatever opponent we're trying to pin and say it happened because I'm strong. We ought to recognize that the Lord has blessed us when we had no ability to simply manage our own circumstances. And this is true even for unbelievers, you know. Even those who don't realize it. The successful, the successful unbeliever who works hard and is diligent and disciplined and plans wisely, the self-made man, still didn't get there on his own or on her own. As I said earlier, for every success story, there are a hundred people who work just as hard. When God... When a person reaches a certain point in their career or whatever, even for the unbeliever who doesn't acknowledge it, it's because God has caused them to prevail by His grace. Still, they didn't do it by their strength. The world is not yours for the taking. You can't just go out there and do it. That's not how things work. So often, God does... Cause us to prevail through the exercise of whatever strength we have. But it's not because of our strength that we are where we are. If we get there. And God may cause us to prevail in spite of the absence of strength on our end. Don't fear that if and when you have nothing left, that you're ineligible for God's blessing. At times God causes things to work out for us in a way that we didn't work towards. In a way that we could never have anticipated. And in a way that we don't deserve, per se. And all of this because God is the sort of God that is still willing to bless you even when you come to the end of yourself. Your strength is not the only asset you have. If you're a Christian, God is on your side. And He's watching over you. And very often when you come to the end of yourself, He provides for you in a way that has nothing to do with your strength whatsoever. Whether it be through the benevolence of the church or particular brothers and sisters in the church or other circumstances, whatever they may be. 
God often opens doors that literally have nothing to do with our exercise of strength. When we prevail, it's not because of our own strength, even if it's through the means of the exercise of our strength. And often, we prevail in spite of the absence of strength altogether. Look at Jacob's reunion with Esau as a case in point of this very thing. In verse, in chapter 33. What ground did Jacob have to stand on in his reunion with Esau? Yes, I deceived you and robbed you, treated you terribly, caused you to want to kill me, etc., etc. But... At least I have this in my favor. What, what could Jacob put in the asset column as he reunited with his brother? Basically nothing. There was a sizable gift of livestock here, but you realize that with 400 men, Esau could have killed everybody and took the livestock anyway. So really, if Esau was bent on doing Jacob harm, Jacob had literally nothing in his favor. And in fact, whatever physical strength he might have had had been spent in the night wrestling the man. And now his hip was in pain. But God causes Esau to be at peace with Jacob. It seems that Esau most likely was indeed coming out to do Jacob harm. At best, Esau was hedging his bets in case Jacob tried anything funny so that this time Jacob wouldn't get the upper hand. But it's it's quite possible and probable that Esau actually intended to do his brother harm. We read in verse 3 of chapter 33 that Jacob went on before them in front of his family. So after the gifts, but in front of his family. Bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. Implicitly, why? Because he was afraid that his brother was going to kill him. And then look at how verse 4 starts. But, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. It seems that the expectation here was that Esau was going to do him harm. And that Esau's actual response was a surprise. This seems to be an instance of what we read in Proverbs 21 and verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The Lord can change a man's heart, and that's not only with respect to regeneration or the new birth, but God can make those favorable who weren't. Sure, there may be natural reasons. All of these gifts coming may have indicated to Esau that Jacob is not who he once was. That Jacob's not here to take advantage of me. That Jacob's a changed man. Perhaps as he saw the kindness and the generosity of his brother Jacob, he was thinking about his own malice and his own hatred. I think, do I really want to shed blood now? 
as he's approaching me in this way? A soft answer turns away wrath. Jacob was giving a soft answer here. Even in the language that he uses. He instructed all of his servants to say, in chapter 32 and verse 18, to Esau, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. Jacob is showing deference, respect to his brother, a soft answer, generosity, even reparations, if you will. And it's possible that through this, the heart of his brother was touched. It's possible too that as he saw Jacob approaching him, bowing himself down seven times, that he remembered their boyhood days when they would play together, when they would run to and fro in the yard. All of the memories that they made so long ago and that familial warmth was rekindled. And he just thought when it came to the moment, I don't have it in my heart to kill my own brother. All of these natural reasons could have been at play, but it certainly does seem to be an instance of what we read in Proverbs 21, that the Lord can change someone's heart. Jacob's statement in verse 10 of chapter 33, that Esau's face is like the face of God to him, is essentially the recognition that though he was as weak and vulnerable before Esau as he was before God, he has prevailed again by grace. And he's thankful for that. He's thankful that Esau has been merciful to him. So he says, I'm just glad that you haven't killed me. Take the gifts. Take the gifts. This reminds me, as it were, of last night. When I was also in a weak and vulnerable position. Jacob learns here in this narrative, in both of these instances, God could have killed him. His brother could have killed him. But his interests prevail. He succeeds. Both with God and with men. Not because he's strong. In both of these instances, he was weak. But he succeeds in both of these instances because of grace. Because of mercy. And so Jacob, prior to leaving Canaan 20 years earlier, was looking for a blessing in his own strength. By dressing himself up in goat skins and going and lying to his father and doing everything he could in his own strength to get the blessing. That was the sort of man he was. God has been teaching him over the last 20 years. And now in this narrative here, reinforces it very vividly by wrestling with him all night and emptying him of his strength. And then, and then blessing him. Jacob, it's not because of your strength. That's not how life and relationship with me works. You don't impress me. You don't bring anything to the table, Jacob. Look to me. Trust me. I will bless you though you are weak. I will take care of you, Jacob. This is what's going on here in this narrative. As it was with Jacob, so it is with us. The same principles are at play 
now in our lives as they were in Jacob's. So don't go through life thinking you're going to prevail by your own strength. Certainly not with respect to your relationship to God. If anyone in this room thinks that you're going to go to heaven because of your own strength, that on that last day when you stand before God, He's going to look at your merits and your demerits and weigh them up and find that the merits are more than the demerits and accept you because of your own strength. You're kidding yourself. God is of purer eyes than to behold evil. God doesn't grade on a scale just because you did better than your classmates. It doesn't mean you're going to pass the exam. It is written, Be holy as I am holy, says the Lord. There is none righteous, no, not one. The only way that you will prevail on the day of judgment is to lay there, exhausted, at the end of yourself, with no strength, with nothing to bring to the table, with no desire or ability to go on, but simply clinging to Christ Jesus and His cross as Jacob clung to the man. And saying to God on that day, I will not let go of Christ and His gospel until they bless me. Until He blesses me. All I have is a tenacious grip on Christ. As I said already, It ought to be on our tongues, in our mouths that day. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. That's how we prevail with God. And in the meantime, we ought not to go through life thinking that we're going to prevail in circumstances by our own strength. You ought not to think that you can manage and commandeer your whole life. Grab life by the horns, so to speak. Just do it, as Nike says. You can't think that you just go out there and one plus one equals two, and so work ethic and wise planning equal worldly success. You can't think that you're going to just go out there and in your strength make all your dreams come true. Contrary to what so much of Western society tells us, you can't be whatever you want to be. You don't just have to believe in yourself. Even if you believe in yourself, you still might fail. There are some things that are just not going to happen. And even if you had all the genetics and all of the right doors of opportunity open in front of you and everything was going right, you realize that all of that can change in a second. 
by a car accident or a cancer diagnosis or whatever. You are not in control of your life. If you are to prevail, it is not going to be because of your own strength. Even if the Lord uses whatever exercise of strength you have, or uses the exercise of whatever strength you have, even then it's not because of your strength that you've succeeded. It may be by by means of your strength that you've succeeded. But it's because of God's grace. If all is well in your life now, it's by God's grace. If you get to a point in your life where all is well, it's by God's grace. God could well reach out His hand and put out your hip at any time. Your hands haven't done it. You will never be a self-made man or a self-made woman. So instead of thinking that you will prevail by your own strength, either with God or with man, recognize your relative weakness. Recognize that you are like Jacob, lying pinned under your opponent with your hip out of joint. Just recognize that. That will be a good start in life. Recognize that with respect to God, with respect to your life circumstances, your dealings with men, recognize that that's basically your estate. You're laying there pinned under your opponent with your hip out of joint. And then look to God for blessing in the midst of your weakness. Ask Him to help you and to prosper you spiritually. He has promised to do that, you know. That's one we can name and claim. We can lay hold of the promises in Scripture. Whoever trusts in Christ Jesus will not be put to shame. Whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. As you lay there weak, take hold of Christ and His gospel and say to God, I will not let you go unless you bless me. But then even with respect to life circumstances, there's nothing we can name or claim here, by the way. God hasn't promised you health, wealth, prosperity. God hasn't even promised you a spouse. God hasn't promised you children. God hasn't promised you a good career. Recognize your weakness, even as we saw a couple weeks ago in the narrative on the last half of Genesis 30. There's nothing wrong with trying to do a little something for your family. There's nothing wrong with making plans. Even as Jacob does here in chapter 32, there's nothing wrong with planning for um, making contingency plans for negative events in our lives, taking out insurance policies, saving for a rainy day. There's nothing wrong with any of these things. But recognize even as you do these things, even as you do these things, you're not doing them from a place of strength. And you're not actually getting yourself to a place of strength. You're doing these things from a place of weakness where you're still utterly dependent upon God, not to put out your other hand, but to cause you to prevail. 
So as you do what you do, even with respect to life circumstances, even as you try to make wise plans, even as you try to work diligently, even as you try to do all that, lay hold of God and look to Him ultimately to prevail. Look to Him ultimately to bless you. He's not a... ATM machine where you deposit and then you take out in a predictable fashion nor is he a slot machine at a casino where you put in something and hope that you're going to get something out and sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't but it's arbitrary what God is is a good and gracious God a benevolent Father. So just look to Him and just ask Him to help you prevail. Look to Him and ask Him to bless you. Do it like Jacob. I'm not worthy. And mean it. Then if God says no, you're not going to say you unfaired me. If you really believe you're not worthy, you're going to say okay. He decided not to in this instance. But just look to Him. Cast your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. Recognize that He is the sort of God who even though He could put out your other hip, would be just as likely to turn around and bless you. Do it spiritually. Do it in all your circumstances. In all of life, recognize that if you are to prevail, it's not going to be because of your own strength, but it's going to be because of God's grace. Look to Him always in everything for grace, for grace. Stop trusting in your own strength. Start trusting in God's grace, even as you exercise whatever strength you have.